0: When I was a lot younger one of the classic movies that we used to watch was called *Castaway*. Most people have seen it. It's uh, got Tom Hanks in it and he gets stranded on a desert island. He has to figure out how it is that he's gonna live there. I think he's there for something like four years until he finally figures out a way to get off the island, makes his own little little raft and is picked up by a, a, a freighter in the middle of the ocean. There's a scene when he gets back to uh, the, the dry land basically and he is in a hotel room because he's, he's famous now. I mean, it, this guy survived four years on a desert island and everyone wants to interview him. And so he's waiting for uh, the next day so that he can do a bunch of interviews. And uh, he's in this hotel room all alone. And all the scene is is him laying on the floor instead of the bed because he's not used to the softness of the bed. And he's just sitting there flipping, flipping the light switch on and off, just on and off. Because while he was on the desert island, uh, one of the hardest things that he had to deal with was how in the world am I going to get fire? How, how, how do how we get light? And then the idea that is so easy in every room that we walk in to flip a light switch on and we, ne- and we never think about it. Um, the point, I think, that's being made there is that familiarity doesn't necessarily breed contempt, but it certainly does breed complacency or apathy. Uh, we are so used to things around us in our lives, like indoor plumbing, for example, that uh, we just goes without thinking that, it, that it's there. But you know what it's like if you've ever traveled somewhere where indoor plumbing is not, uh, not a thing, or maybe you go camping for the weekend, or um, you go to another country far away where, where the, the toilets don't work right, you, you come back. Uh, home and you and you walk in after you dirty you want to get in the you, you want to get in the shower you are standing in the shower and you're so thankful that there is clean water coming out of the shower head and it's hot and that you, you smell nice you can shave all your bits and then um, you get out and and there's the toilet and uh, my wife actually has 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 come in on me before while I am standing there uh, with a towel and just staring at the toilet, almost crying. And she'll, she'll say, what is wrong with you? And I just say, I just love our toilet so much. And then flush it and say, look how beautiful. Look, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, I don't spend most of my life thanking God for the toilets or the indoor plumbing in my house because it's all familiar. And familiarity breeds complacency or apathy. Um, the book of Malachi which we're gonna start studying today, is really trying to address that issue, not as it pertains to travel or light switches or toilets, but as it pertains to the faith. What happens when you've been a Christian for a long time? Or what happens when you follow God for years, and you maybe grew up in the church? What happens when uh, just the stuff of God becomes mundane? It's just the things you do. It's not that you don't believe in it. It's not that you're not involved in it. It's just, meh. I think people before the pandemic were in this situation, right? "Ah, I don't know if we'll go to church today. Ah, I don't know if we'll bother. And then the pandemic happens and you have people going, I just want to go to church. Right. Because familiarity breeds apathy. And the book of Malachi is really trying to challenge the apathetic. And it's an aggressive book. I'll be honest with you, it's a a bit of a stomach punch. Uh, It's a prophetic book, and prophetic in the sense that it is urging the people to repent from their apathy. And so uh, we're going to study it over the next number of weeks. It's a great, there's only four chapters in the book. And today, though, I want to look at Malachi 1, verses 1 to 5. This is where we're going to start. What's interesting about the beginning of a book that's aggressive and and, um, and prophetic is that it doesn't begin with aggression and necessarily the prophetic heavy handedness. It begins, in fact, with a statement of the love of God. So this whole sermon is gonna be about that. What is the love of God? Uh, what are its edges? How does it influence us? That kind of thing. And so uh, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Malachi chapter 1, verses one to five. Um, the the verses will also be on the screen so you can follow along. Uh, in this passage we are going to learn three things just to give you kind of an outline to, so you can follow along. First, we're going to learn that God's love fuels our response. The second, God's love is often clouded by our tears. And third, that God's love is especially seen in His sovereign grace. And that's a phrase I'll, I'll explain when we get there, okay? so. Uh, It fuels our response. It's clouded by our tears, and it's especially seen in His sovereign grace. Here we go. God's love fuels our our response. Verses 1 to 2 of Malachi chapter 1. A prophecy. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. As a little pieces that I want to pick out there and just explain a little bit. Malachi, that that name. Uh, we're not really sure whether that's a real name or if it's what we call a pseudonym. Uh, the word means in Hebrew my messenger. And so it could be that the writer is just giving himself, you know, that, that title, my messenger, which is, you know, kind of a a general title for what the guy's basically doing. Right? It's like it's like calling yourself the preacher or whatever, the messenger. It's not a formal name, maybe. It also could be a guy named Malachi, whose name means my messenger. We're not really know, we don't really know. History of the church really hasn't told us a whole bunch about it. But that's not, it's not that important. What's important is the content of, of the book. And it's a prophecy. You saw that. It's like the first, second word, a prophecy. And as I said before, this prophecy um, is not so much foretelling, but forth-telling. So foretelling is saying, uh, this is what's gonna happen in the future, and that's usually what we think about when we think about prophecy. But that happens in, in Malachi a little bit later on in the book, but the first part of it is foretelling. It's basically prophetic in the sense that it's a guy standing on his soapbox and declaring things to the nation of Israel that they need to hear. He's like a really, really bold preacher, the old style of fire and brimstone, give it to him, boy type of preacher. And that's what you get here in this, in this prophecy. But, as I said before, it starts not with this bold prophecy, hey, figure it out, but with this line, I have loved you. And I gotta be honest, that is a very surprising and unexpected line if you read the rest of the book and understand how aggressive the book, the book is. It's unexpected because people like me, if if I want to get my kids, for example, to do something uh, like clean their rooms, which is a perpetual challenge for me. So if I want to get them to clean their rooms, uh, usually my approach is I go to them and, and and I say to them, while they're usually asleep early in the morning, when they don't want to wake up, I'll wake them up and say, you see your room? This is unacceptable. You are going to clean your room. I'm so tired. Why are you waking me up for this? Because you need to clean your room right now. And I picked an opportune time when you will be listening to me and nothing else. No FaceTime, no video games. You are listening to me right now. Clean your room. Figure it out. That's kind of prophetic, right? It's bold. and That's how you approach somebody you want to correct. At least the way I do. But that's not the way that Malachi does. That's not the way that the Lord does through Malachi. Instead, what you get here is not, hey, guys, figure it out. You'll get some of that later. But what you get in the beginning is, hey, guys, you know I've loved you, right? This is a really interesting and important point because throughout Scripture, you will find that the commands of God, right, the the charge of God, the correction of God, the do this of God fueled by a reminder of his love. The commands of God are fueled by a reminder of his love. Obedience is fueled by knowing he loves you. So when you look through scripture, you find this as a pattern. So here's some examples. in the first the first time the law of God is given in the book of Exodus so you got Moses uh, remember he, he crosses the Red Sea and then God is going to come and he's going to give the law right 10 commandments Exodus chapter 20. Listen to the way that the law begins the giving of the law begins in Exodus 20 verse 1 and God spoke all these words I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery you shall have no other gods before me, and then the rest of the Ten Commandments. You notice he doesn't start, hey, you should have no other gods before me. He starts with a reminder of the grace that he's shown them. Remember you guys were back in Egypt? Remember when you, you, you were, uh, had no way out? Remember you were oppressed, and the greatest nation, strongest nation in the world had you under its thumb? Remember what I did to Pharaoh? Remember I brought you out, crossed the Red Sea? Remember that whole scene? That was your salvation. That was your deliverance. I saved you by the power of my own hand. And because of that, because of the love I've shown you, therefore do this. You get the same kind of idea when in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the people of Israel are supposed to explain the law of God to the next generation. So kids will come along and say, why is it that we have this law? And they're supposed to explain where it comes from and what it's doing. So, you get in Deuteronomy 6, verse 20. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? They're going to come to you and they're going to ask, why do we follow these things? Tell him, well, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders great and terrible on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised as an oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case Today, notice that the description of the law is at the end, but there's a long description in the beginning. When you're telling your kids about this, you don't just say, Well, God gave it to us because you know he needs to be obeyed and he's God. No, God gave us this law because look at all the saving that he's done, look at all the the, the love that he's shown to us, right? So in the New Testament, you get a very similar kind of approach by the Apostle Paul. So you get that in in a passage uh, or in a book like Ephesians. So the beginning of the book of Ephesians uh, goes this way. Uh, Ephesians one, verse verse three. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Notice the past tense, or the passive voice. Um, Who has blessed us. We've been blessed. We're the recipients of it. We didn't do anything to get it. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation or the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Look what God has done for you. Look at the love that he's shown you. And then, after he explains that in Ephesians one to three basically, right? Ephesians two, for grace you have been saved. It's not of yourself, it's the gift of God so that no one can boast what God's done for you. And then in chapter four, you get a turn. In chapter four, verse one, it says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. What calling we've received? Well, to be God's people. He called you. He brought you out. He saved you. Therefore, live a life worthy of that. Live a life as a gratitude for that kind of thing. You see? All of the imperatives of Scripture, all of the imperatives from God, right? The do things, the commands, the imperatives of God are rooted in the indicatives. Indicatives are a statement of fact. All the imperatives are rooted in the indicatives. Uh, I, we have a picture next to my, next to my bed. Um, uh, when I lay on my side, I, I look at the picture. The picture is, is of my wife and me on our wedding day. Uh, and she is magnificent. I mean, it is, uh, uh, Jeannie is a beautiful woman anyway, but she, she, this picture is particularly great. Uh, I look like a doofus standing next to her. But there she is, and sometimes I lay on, the, on my side and I look at that picture before going to bed. And you know what floods my mind is all the memories of how we got to that point, right? When I first met her, uh, and how, how great it was that somebody like her, who I found out was even remotely interested in me, and how I, tr- I pursued her by going down to her dorm room and acting like a fool most of the time. And I, I couldn't stop talking when we were together because she she sometimes would be quiet, and I had to fill the space with something because I was so uncomfortable, and I didn't want her to walk away. And so I, she ended up telling me, "Why do you never shut up?" And uh, and she, you know, we we went out together to a place called Barter's for a, a roast beef sandwich, and I barely ate it, which is shocking for me. And I, you know, I all of the story about, and we went, I went away to Europe and came back, and she was there, and we met each other again, and fell in love again, and anyway, all of the story floods my mind when I'm looking at that picture. I remember the day when we got married. I couldn't believe, and even to this day, I couldn't believe that that she would choose me, that she would love me. So when I look at this picture, I got to tell you, I, I often will roll over the other side, and I will just stare at her. She usually has her eyes closed, and I'll just stare at her with this goofy grin on my face, and she'll... She'll open her eyes and she'll say, What are you doing? That's creepy. And I can't help it. I'm just, I said, I just love you. Now, in this moment, she could ask me to, to do anything around the house that she wants to. She could, Jeff, you know what? I need to take the trash out all night long. I would probably do it. Jeff, I need you to power wash the outside of the home. Okay, I'll do that. Jeff, I need you to pick up after the dog and his defecation in the backyard and put it all in a bucket and I need you to guard it overnight. I would probably do it. Why? Because I can't believe that someone like her could love me. Right. The devotion and passion of doing something for her comes from the fact that she has shown such love for me. And that's really what the gospel is about. That's what gospel is supposed to do to you. The solution to really bad living, disobedience, apathy, lack of excitement for God. The the, the solution is not me to come into your bedroom and say, clean it up, figure it out. The solution is to start by telling you, do you have any idea how much he loves you? Can you look at the picture of your past with God and, and remember how you got here? how he saved you from the pit, how you were in that state before you were saved. And now he's brought you to this solid ground and has lavished on you blessing upon blessing. Or maybe he never let you go in the pit. Maybe he surrounded you with a family who's loved you all these years and preserved you from all the pain and heartache and regret that comes upon people who had to spend time in the pit, who put themselves in the pit. How He's delivered you from some of your past, from the things that happened to you and the things that you've done. Have you ever just stopped and just thought and gazed at the picture of God's grace and the fact that He loves you? And when that hits you, when those indicatives hit you, All you do is roll over and say, God, I'll do whatever. I'll do whatever. So God's love fuels our response. Here's the second part. Um, God's love is often clouded, though, by our tears. I want to read the same verse and then just tack on one line at the end that Malachi includes. So we're still in verses one to two. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? I have have loved you, but you ask, how have you loved us? There's a reason that they ask that question. So a little historical background about the book of Malachi, Um, this this book is being written to a people who uh, have gone through a very interesting recent history with with God and their nation. Uh, You will remember perhaps if you know anything about the Bible um, that there is a thing called the Babylonian captivity. Basically the people of Israel refused to obey God and so he sent, allowed the Babylonians to come and to capture. Jerusalem and destroy the temple, which is the center of the religious worship. You know, the temple was where God dwelt. And so uh, the temple was destroyed. The Ark of God was taken out of the temple and, and, you know, shipped off to Babylon along with guys like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. All these guys were shipped off to, for re-education camps, basically. The Babylonian captivity lasted about 70 years and it was not a good time for the people of Israel. It was a very chastising time. A lot of repentance was going on, but they were promised that they would be delivered from it. And when they were delivered from it, it was actually at the hands of the Persians. So another nation came in and they they beat up the Babylonians, in other words, right? They showed up and they did uh, the, the deliverance, like the, the allied powers came during World War II and kicked the Nazis out. And the Persians were better, right? They were much better than uh, than the the Babylonian Empire in that they allowed Israel and the people of Israel to return back to their homeland and to rebuild the temple, for example. They even funded that. But that wasn't the only building project that the Persian Empire did. In fact they loved to build everything and in order to get the money to build everything they taxed people in their empire like crazy. Tax upon tax upon tax upon tax. And so here's what was happening in Jerusalem. It was already decimated by the Babylonians. They had built the temple the Persians had in the city, but there wasn't a whole lot else they had built. Instead, they had just layered tax upon tax. So they had massive poverty in the city of Jerusalem. Beautiful temple, massive poverty. Everyone else living in that area was living in squalor, basically. So yes, the people had their land back, but nobody wanted to live there. And along comes God and says, see how I've loved you? What do you mean you've loved us? Like for 70 years, we were under the thumb of the Babylonians, and now we've supposedly returned, and life is so great, because here we are. Yeah, we got the temple, but like, we have nothing. We have nothing. This is how you treat people you love? I mean, it, honestly, it would be like you know, if you had a son, and, and, and he, you know, through a series of his own mistakes, ended up in, in, on the streets, and you came across, and you found him in this sewer. And you you came up to him and and said, oh, see how I've loved you? (laughs) And your son's like, okay, wait a minute. You've all along had an opportunity to help me, provide for me. You have the mean style, but you've done nothing. You love me? Man, I'd hate to see the people you don't love. So you can understand their, their question. And the reason you can understand it is because sometimes we don't feel god loves us in light of what has happened or is currently happening our view of god is often clouded by tears the view of his love and the view of his nature and the view of his character is often clouded very much by our own tears i suppose the good news is that we're not alone similar to you know what, what I said about God's love fueling our response uh, the Bible is replete with examples of how it is that God's love is often clouded by our tears like you and I stand on the shoulders of some pretty great people who have cried out to God in the midst of their sorrow wondering where, where in the world he is so for example in Psalm 13 verse 1 you say it says how long O Lord Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? Some people could write that and put it on their mirror and say it every day and say, that's exactly how I feel. In Habakkuk chapter one, verse two, how long Lord must I call for help but you don't listen or cry out to you violence? Don't you see what's going on around us, God? But you don't save. Why, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate the wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds, and yet you're silent. There's an entire book of the Bible, in fact, actually, that's called Lamentations. and People don't even know it's there. It's a book called Lamentations, where the people of Israel are lamenting both their sin and what God has done in response to their sin and their, now their particular situation that they're in because of it all. Lamentations 3 verse 1, I'm, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hat against me again and again all day long. You have loved us. How have you loved me? Do you know, I, I don't know why it is that Christians think they have to have it all together. Why it is that we feel like we have to present our best selves in front of everyone else. We, we live largely, especially in, with, with other Christians, we, we live largely Instagram lives. Look, look at all these cool things that I have. You know, How are you doing today? I'm great. Maybe you are great. That's awesome. But why is it that in the church we often feel like we have to actually produce great? How are you doing today? Oh, every day's better and better. Life with Jesus is just one sweet dream. I think sometimes that maybe the way that we believe that is because we see sometimes, you know, the 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 testimonies that happen when people get baptized or they talk about their past life and they say, you know what, things were really terrible and these whole, horrible things happen and God saved me. And it's a great, great story. And then, you know, hey, you know what, I just am, everything's been great since and stuff. And then sometimes you get the idea that, you know, once you come to faith in Jesus, it's going to be really great. And so that's kind of the expectation of the community. And so even though it's not great, I kind of have to put on the face. I have to make sure that people think it's great. There's a little video I want you to see. I love this video. It went viral the other day. So here, you can have a look. It's about a little girl who's trying to like the spaghetti her mother made for her. How is it? Good. It looks so. It looks like you're enjoying yourself. Mm. Oh, yeah. That looks. I think you're enjoying. Okay. You okay? Are you enjoying <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay. okay. Don't you think that we're like that so often, though? (laughs) Like, oh, this is great, God. Oh, hey, what's going on? It's great. Oh, how am I doing? Excellent. I don't know why we do this. Because listen, listen, as a herald of God's word, that's what it means to be a preacher, as a herald Of God's Word, as somebody who's been called to proclaim the truth and excellencies of God and His Word, I give you permission to be real. The Bible is a very real book. I give you permission to say, COVID sucks. I miss traveling. I miss hugs, which might surprise you, knowing if you know me. (laughs) I would probably hug everybody at this point. Look, I know God's doing good things that I can't see, but the reason I can't see them is because it's hard to see through the tears. And it's okay to admit that. God's not shocked or offended. Believe it or not, God himself knows what it's like to cry because at one point Jesus stood outside the tomb of his friend and he wept. Jesus knows what it's like to have people abandon him in the key moments to be left all alone, dying, hanging there, nobody there to help. He, he knows what it's like to have your best friend, or one of them, lie about you and, and, and turn their back on you and stab the knife in your back. People you, n- you never thought would ha- that would happen from. He knows what that's like, the betrayal to have people talk about him in a way that that wasn't true or or he, he knows what that's like. He knows what it's like to feel abandoned. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows what it's like to be oppressed by the government. Why do you think he was on the cross to begin with? So look, there's nothing you're gonna say to God that's gonna surprise him, and I gotta be honest, there's nothing you're gonna say to me or any other Christian about the state of your life, the difficulty you have in certain moments, ways that you might doubt. You're not gonna say anything like that, that God's not heard before, that the Bible doesn't talk about doubting Thomas. It's not gonna shock me or any other Christians. We all know what it's like. Sometimes it's hard to see the love of God through the tears. Finally, the question remains, okay then, how do I know God loves me? And I ask the question, you, really, you love me? How, how does God respond to the objection? Well, here we go, verses one to five now of Malachi chapter one, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord, but but you ask, how have you loved us? And here's the answer. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country, Esau's hill country, into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom, which is the nation that descends from Esau, may say, "Oh, though we've been crushed, we'll rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I'm going to demolish they will be called the wicked land. I mean, Israel is going to be called the holy land, right? We still call it that way, but they are going to be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. See, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. So how do you know that God loves you? Well, here's, here's his argument, okay? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Okay, so what, he, what he's trying to do here is saying, okay, I want you to jog your memories. Why don't we go back and have you think for a minute about Esau and Jacob and how they came to be and that they were brothers. And here's their story. Rebecca, their mom, going to have kids. And she was told in the prophecy that the older will serve the younger. Okay, Esau is going to be the older and Jacob's going to be the younger. Usually it's the younger serves the older. That's the way it worked in those days. The older is going to serve the younger, and so when it comes time for her to have to give birth, she gives birth, and Esau comes out. He's apparently a hairy guy. That's why they call him Esau. He's got red hair all over him. And then Jacob comes out, but when Jacob comes out, he's grasping the heel of Esau, almost like he's trying to pull him back in so that he could be the first one out. That, that, that phrase, grasping the heel, in Hebrew, that's what we call an idiom, and the... it's a saying and uh, it's what they use to describe a deceiver and the word Jacob is one who grasps the heel one who is a deceiver and that name really comes to represent Jacob but at the very start you know you can see Jacob trying to grab the the birthright you know as time goes on they end up you know growing up and there's a scene where Jacob who is making some food in the house uh, making a stew, and, and uh, Esau, who's a you know he's a man's man, he's outside hunting all the time, and he comes in and he says, "I'm famished." And Jacob said, "Well, I made this really great stew right here. Would you like to have some?" And Esau says, "Would I ever?" And and Jacob, the deceiver, says, "Okay, just sell me your birthright. I'll trade you. I'll trade you the birthright, the the, the blessings from our father, the covenant promises. I I will trade you." that for this pot of stew now normally somebody would say that's absurd (laughs) what are you kidding me but Esau says sweet fine I mean who cares about a blessing when you're starving and in that way Esau disparaged was apathetic was complacent toward the blessing he didn't care care that he was the firstborn didn't care about the blessing that he was supposed to have but you know this was a blip in the radar he'd still thought, oh what a big deal it's not actually going to come to fruition. yeah I sold him the, the blessing the same way I promised stuff to my brother all the time. Well later on when the time comes for, for Isaac their father to die he's about to give he's about to give uh, Esau the blessing but Jacob uh, jumps into the queue and basically well Esau's out hunting, Jacob shows up with some fuzzy fuzzy animal skin on his arm so he feels like like hairy Esau and an uh, Isaac, who's blind, can't tell the difference and so he ends up conferring upon Jacob who's deceived his way into it. He confers upon Jacob the blessing. Esau shows up later and says, here I am, ready to receive the blessing and his dad said, huh, what, wait, what? And they realize that they have been Deceived. That's the story, at least the part that Malachi wants you to think about. Think about Esau, who disparaged and did not like the blessing, and Jacob, who deceived his way into getting it. And here's the conclusion. Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. Now, some people read that and they're like, oh, yeah, that basically means that, you know, God God loves everybody. And so God, you know, he he just loves Jacob more than he loves Esau. Well, maybe, but that's not really what's going on here. What what this means is not so much that um, God loved Jacob more than Esau, but that he loved him rather than Esau. With the language here is about election. It's about being chosen. Jacob, I love. Jacob, I chose. And Esau, I hated. Esau, I didn't. Neither of them deserved anything, but Jacob I chose to confer the blessings on. Esau, I left. And you see that, in fact, the rest of their, uh, rest of their, their, their lives and the, and the lives of, the, of the, the nations that follow him. Edom, Esau's progeny, his, his family, they end up being at war with Israel all the time. They end up rebelling against God all the time. And even though Israel rebels against God, when God comes to Israel, he disciplines them. But when Edom rebels against God, comes and destroys them. Discipline for the elect, destruction for the left. Esau I've loved, or Jacob I've loved, Esau. I've hated. So despite what it looked like at the time, Israel should have known God loved them because he chose them when he should have judged them. Isn't that the point here? Basically what's being described here is look at all the things that I have done to Esau and Edom. You guys deserve the same because Jacob's wickedness was just as bad as Esau's wickedness, but I chose Jacob and I left Esau. And as a result, you're mine. So no matter what happens in your life, no matter what's going on, Jacob, no matter what's going on, Israel, you need to know that I made a covenant with you that you were not a part of like, you know, walking through the the split animal About, I made it all by myself. I called you out all by myself. There are a whole bunch of other nations in the world, but I came to you. I called you. I loved you. Everything you've ever done in response has been because I have pursued you. So no matter what's happening in your life right now, you should know I love you because I chose you and I remain committed to you. So in the New Testament, one of the things you'll find is that that kind of language about election and choosing and stuff is actually applied very closely to people like you and me. Jacob, I loved. The the people who are God's covenant receivers, he loved. That's why we we receive the covenant. because he loved us. He pursued us. We deserved judgment, but he he pursued us. So I know that God loves me, despite all the things that are going on in my life that I don't like, the things that I'm looking at through tears and wondering whether God is loving me, all of those things he loves me because I know that he chose me when he should have judged me. Now, now, look, before we go any further, I need to address a few. There's a little bit of theology really quickly, okay? And then we'll finish things out with some application. But a uh, little theology. Whenever we talk about the doctrine of election or things like this, um, people start objecting. They're like, wait a minute, God chooses some and he leaves others? Yeah, that's basically Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Uh, That's not, wait a minute, what? So these are the kinds of, these are four uh, frequently heard objections that I get whenever uh, I make that comment or we read passages that seem to indicate that that's what what the Bible is teaching. Um, The first objection is, wait a minute, I think, doesn't God just choose everyone? And the answer is, well, no, clearly not. Jacob was chosen and Esau was not. So Esau wasn't chosen. Ishmael wasn't chosen, Isaac was. Not, every, not everybody is chosen, That's the, in fact, that doesn't really make any sense. If you say, well, everybody's chosen, can you, you, mean, you can imagine, hey, we're gonna elect, we're gonna elect a, a, a class president, and uh, in order to elect the class president, I elect everyone. Well, by electing everyone, you're not electing anyone. You're in the same boat, to to elect, to choose, is to choose out from a group. That's what it means, that's the word means. So does God choose anyone? Well, that doesn't make any sense. Sorry, does God choose everyone? That doesn't make any sense. The second objection is, um, well, doesn't God choose based upon what he foresees in people, like he looks down the quarter of time and he sees which people are gonna respond to him and based upon that. He choose so in this case, you know, he looked down and realized that Jacob was going to be a better dude, or receive God more than Esau was. And yet, I got to tell you, man, this story about Jacob and Esau really puts that whole argument to rest because uh, Jacob is not a good dude. He is not a good dude. Esau. By all arguments, all evidence seems to be a little bit, be- little bit better. So if God were going to choose based upon something he foresaw on them, he probably should have chosen Esau. Jacob is not the guy that you would end up, end up picking, and yet God does. They both deserve judgment, and God chooses Jacob, the younger. Romans 9, verse 10 actually gets to this point. It cites this passage in Malachi. It says, not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad. In order that God's purpose in election might stand not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Before they before God saw that they did anything good or bad, before that he, he, he didn't base it upon that particular aspect, so that his purpose and election might continue, not by works, not by what anybody does, not by God sees them doing in the future, but by him who calls. It's only by grace. In fact, that's the only way it can be by grace. Guys, I don't know if you ever thought about this, that if God is making his decision about who's saved and not saved, the Bible talks about election. It just does, okay? The argument between people is on what basis does God elect? Does he elect based upon just purely his own will and on the mystery of his own will? Or does he elect based upon something he foresees in people? Most people say, well, obviously it's based upon He foresees in people because that seems fairer. But the problem with that is if God bases it on what he foresees in people, then uh, you're saved and somebody else is not saved. And the only difference between you and them is that you saw it better than they did. You both had a free choice, you claim. Both of you had full access to God. You chose, they didn't. And so at the end of time, the difference between you being in heaven and them being in hell is your ability to see it right. And I I don't think that you believe that. Nobody talks about their salvation that way. Nobody does. He pursued me. He pursued Jacob. <laughs> Finally, fourth uh, third objection. It isn't, isn't choosing some though and leaving others just unjust? Well, you, you, I think so, but, but not in the way you think. And when we say that's unfair or that's unjust, this just doesn't seem to make any sense. It d- well, it's, it's only unjust to our, to our benefit. And, and by that, I, I mean um, both of these guys deserve judgment, right? Jake, Esau, um, Esau rejected what the birthright was, and, and Jacob deceived. So here's the question you have to ask. Is it just for God to judge Esau and those who follow him for their rejection of God and his blessing? And everybody's going to answer, of course that's just. In fact, that's the definition of justice, to give people what they deserve. Right. Okay, is it just then for God to bless Jacob despite his rebellion? His deception now the answer there is like actually that's kind of unfair that's unjust in fact that's gracious right so if there is injustice with God it is not it is only to our benefit look let, let me there's lots more to talk about when it comes to this but let me just give you a picture as to what basically is being said here that uh, the way this works is that is that God goes across a beach supposedly it's a picture right uh, God goes across a beach and he, he like a great sculptor he marks out a stone he leaves a whole bunch of others he marks out a stone and said this one's going to be mine and then later on he sends some of his people to come and he collect that stone he takes that stone into his workshop and he starts to chisel things off and eventually he, he gets a sculpture and then he presents it before everybody as a work of his grace as a, as a masterpiece This is a picture of what God has done. He has has marked us out, he's elected, and then he's predestined, right? The destination for for the masterpiece, and then he he picks them up, he calls it out, he puts it on on, on it, and then he starts to sanctify it, right? He starts to chisel it away, and then eventually he glorifies it by putting it in front of everyone. That's the story with every Christian in the world. And the justification? For the end is as good as the justification of the beginning. The person who, is, who is, is elected is also going to be glorified. And here's what that should do to you in your, in your mind and your heart. You should respond to this by saying, number one, I am loved. I am deeply loved. What you've got here is basically the, the worst player being chosen first. You're on a team, a whole bunch of people, guys, are there, you know you're the worst player, you know that you shouldn't be selected, and yet God comes along, or the, the captain comes along and said, I want you. And then he keeps picking the bad ones, right? The weak things of the world he chooses in order to save the in order to shame the wise. <laughs> and then he wins with the really bad team. That's what God's doing. So that everyone will look and say, look how great that God is, and ultimately we're on the team and we're like, I cannot believe I'm winning. This game, <laughs> I don't deserve it. I don't, I, 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 he should have left me. So you need to know, no matter what happens in the world, that you, you are loved, loved on a level that you cannot imagine. Second and finally, you also should know that that love, the knowledge of that love should drive you to worship. Not just worship with your hands and singing, yes that, but also with your life. When Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and, he, and he, is, he, you know, he realizes how bad a guy he is and he says, oh, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. But God comes and touches his lips and forgives his sin. The first thing he says in response to that kind of love and grace is, I'm here, send me. That kind of all of life worship I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer your body as a living sacrifice, by the mercy, in light of God's grand mercy and his saving grace upon you, his sovereign picking you, refining you, calling you, predestining you, glorifying you, in light of all of that, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. You know, there's, a, there's an old missionary story about a guy, um, it's an old missionary story about a guy uh, who was asked, do you you like missions? Do you like what you're doing? (laughs) And the missionary said, do I like living in a hut with no running water? Do do I like living without indoor plumbing? Do Do I like being away from my family? Do I like being hot all the time? Do I I like living on people whose language I find difficult to to speak? Do I like being questioned and accused of all sorts of things and sometimes near death? Do I like all of that? No. No. Well, why do you do it then, he was asked. Love compels us, was his response. Or, as Ephesians 1, verse 4 says, He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace. Let me pray, Father. I'm thankful for Your Word and for all that You're doing with it, through it, for us. Help us to know how deeply we're loved, we pray in Jesus' name.